happy monday everyone so today we're going to do something a tiny bit different of course it is true crime monday but today i think that i'm gonna bring up five mysterious cold cases in one episode so we're going to be talking about five different cold cases let's do this If you are new to my podcast, welcome to you also. Make sure you like, follow, and share this podcast. So, once again, we're going to talk about five mysterious cold cases. So, let's get into it. Number one, Tracy Asayo was born on August 10, 1981 to parents Joe and Elizabeth Asayo. She attended high school in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and moved with her family in Florida in 1998. At the age of 27, she was living with her parents in a house on New Victor Road in Ocoee, Florida. On the evening of March 26, 2009, Tracy spent the evening with friends at the Florida Tap Room Restaurant and Bar on Raleigh Street to watch the Orlando Magic playoff game. Before the game started, she spoke with her mother on the phone and said she would return home later in the night, but she never arrived home and was never seen again. Surveillance video from the restaurant showed her leaving at 1.30 a.m. with the man in her yellow two-door 2002 Chevrolet Cobalt and was that was found abandoned 15 miles from the bar on Franklin Street in Ocoee. Her keys, cell phone, and wallet were all missing. Investigators identified the man leaving the bar with Tracy on the night she went missing as 28-year-old James. He had a way, and to this day, he is alleged to have killed Tracy at the time. He was brought in for questioning and told police he had met Tracy about two weeks before her disappearance at the tap room. She had reportedly given him a ride to his home in the 100 block of Lost Street or Lou Street, but left shortly after on her own. He said he had proposed that they go smoke together, but she didn't like the drugs he had. However, Tracy's cell phone records contradicted his claim and showed she was in the area near or at Hathaway's house until 8.30 a.m. on May 27th. The vacant lot her car was found in was only about 150 yards away from his home. In June 2009, a search warrant was executed on his house, but police did not find any evidence that linked him to Tracy's disappearance. Another woman came forward after the story made the headlines claiming Hathaway attempted to strangle her after she got a ride home with him from a party in 2008. She managed to escape and alert neighbors and had a 
and had a way to flee the scene before she got away however he slammed her face into the concrete when she failed two years later Hathaway was sentenced to life in prison for first-degree attempted murder. Hathaway has also been linked to the disappearance of Chris George, a man from Apaka who went missing 15 months prior to Tracy and was last seen with Hathaway in July of 2011. Bones were recovered from a lake in Apaka and were positively identified as belonging to Chris. However, due to the advanced decomposition of his remains, his cause of death remains unknown. There are also similarities to the Jennifer Kessie case. She was also from Ocoee, just like Tracy, and she had been missing since January 23, 2006. Her car was also found abandoned at another apartment complex a mile from hers. The person of interest who parked Jennifer's car was captured by a surveillance camera that snapped a photo once every three seconds. But all three captures of the suspect in, had the suspect in frame and the suspect's face was obscured by fencing Hathaway's remains. The key suspect in Jennifer's, Tracy's, and Chris's alleged murders. Marcia K. Lou was born in 1978 and was a devout Christian and Seventh-day Adventist. Her sister described her as modest and pure and the kindest person she's ever met. She graduated from the University of Central Florida and was a youth leader for the Pathfinders program at her Seventh-day Adventist church. She didn't drink alcohol or date anyone per her religious beliefs. At the end of 2019, she moved from Florida to Seal, Alabama to be closer to her church family. Her sister and mother agreed they would take turns calling her each Tuesday and Thursdays to check on her. Sadly, she suffered from multiple health issues at the age of 41. She had an inoperable brain tumor, which she had been living with for years, which caused her to suffer with schizoaffective disorder, a mix of bipolar and schizophrenia. In May of 2020, her family became concerned because she wasn't answering their calls and her mailbox was full. So on May 3rd, they asked the police to do a welfare check. When police checked on Marsha, they found her in bed with no obvious signs of distress, but she still didn't contact her family to contact her family. Two days later, her mother and sister asked the property manager at Marsha's home to check on her. The property manager also found her in bed and said she was not her normal self. Later that night, neighbors saw Marcia pack her car car and drive away from the home. Because she had a joint bank account with her mother, her family was able to create a timeline of her activities. Based on the bank records, she stopped at a gas station in Lake Penis off Key, Florida. On May 6th, the next day, she booked a room at the Port LaBelle Inn in LaBelle, Florida. She reserved the room for a week, but checked out the next morning. Her family believed she was trying to get home to her mother in Clewiston, Florida, but got confused even though she was only 30 minutes away. She also made other purchases in Northport and Sarasota that same day. 
Early on the afternoon of May 8th, she bought a bought gas at a pilot gas station in Jasper, Florida around 1 p.m. An image of her was called that day at a Walgreens pharmacy on Park Street in Jacksonville, Florida at 3.35 p.m. She had purchased soap and paper towels and this was the last time she used her debit card. She was known to usually wear a wig, a head wrap, or a scarf, scarf but she was seen in the in the image that day without any of that. She looked much older. Nearly three hours later, she was seen on security camera in a uniform shop on Phillips Highway in Jacksonville walking away from her car in the parking lot. This was the last known sighting of her. Her family said she appeared to have aged drastically and noted she was not wearing her usual head covering. She never returned to her white 2013 Toda Yaris, which was towed away two weeks later. Her mother received the receipt a week later from the towing company that had, and that is how she began to put pieces together of her daughter's last known steps from earlier that month. Marsha's family said that she loved to be alone with God and may have gone to a wooded area for peace and quiet, but would never go this long without trying to contact a family member. Cadaver dogs searched the surrounding areas but found nothing. Along the possibility of her en route to her mother's home in Cluiston, Florida. She may have also been trying to find her sister's former home in Orange Park, Florida. As of today, Marsha has not been found in this case remains unsolved. Number three, Juan Pedro Martinez Gomez, the only child of Andres and Carmen Gomez, lived with his family south of Spain. Marissa Andres was a truck driver and his family would often drive would often travel with him on his shoulder trips. But on June 24, 1986, the family set out with Andreas, who was delivering 5,200 gallons of the highly combustible and corrosive compound, pure sulfuric acid. However, they were all excited about the trip and had made plans to visit the country and see the amazing scenery at the Summer Sierra Mountain passed north of Madrid. After the load of acid was delivered, they stopped to fill up the Volvo F12 truck near the town of Cizat. A little after midnight on June 25th, after taking a nap at a rest area, they returned to the 301 National Highway headed towards Madrid at 5.30 a.m. They made their last stop at the Pilot Inn before continuing on. Witnesses on the road reported seeing the truck driving at speeds of over 86 miles per hour. It would then suddenly stop before speeding off again at high speeds. Witnesses said that it appeared as though the Volvo's brakes were not functioning properly. The truck knocked the mirror off as of one car as it passed, then pushed another car from behind it until it was forced off the road. Finally, it smashed into oncoming traffic causing it to overturn and rupture the sulfuric acid load all over the road. 
Authorities rushed to the scene to contain the environmental damage and cleanup specialists were brought to clean up the spill. After about three hours when it was safe to approach the truck, they found a man and woman in the cabin of the truck deceased and doused in the acid. At the time, authorities didn't know that there had actually been three people in the vehicle. It wasn't until Juan's grandparents asked where their grandson was that they realized they had a missing child. Fearing that the boy was perhaps injured, the crews and police scoured the site of the crash, but there was no trace of him. The only indication that he had even been in the cab with his parents was a single shoe. Some believe that one might have possibly been completely dissolved by the sulfuric acid, so an experiment was done on animal remains to determine if this theory was plausible. However, after taking at least five days for the acid to affect the animal bones, chemists determined that it was virtually impossible, and that theory was ruled out. The police interviewed witnesses to the events leading up to the accident. It was then that the true bizarre nature of the story became evident. Witnesses who had seen the strange behavior of the truck before the accident stated that they had also seen a white van traveling in front of the truck. This van had also been behaving in the strange manner, accelerating and slamming on brakes. The truck's tachometer, which measures the logs and speed of the vehicle, was still intact and showed that they had reached their scheduled stops, including a stop at a gas station and a stop at an air pump. They had went in to a restaurant and a waiter recalled seeing the family and said they came and went without incident. It was also found, however, that following the end, the truck would make seven sudden stops during the ascension of the pass, with the shortest stop lasting less than one second and the longest one near the peak lasting 20 seconds. Truckers that usually drove that route said they usually make one stop at the most and two is a waste of time. Furthermore, there is no traffic jams that would explain the odd stops. Examination of the truck showed that the brakes were not damaged, which means Andre's speed was voluntary. voluntary. This leads some to speculate that one Juan had been kidnapped by the couple in the white van and Andreas was chasing them. The trucker that was run off the road by the family stated that he saw a white Nissan van stop by his vehicle immediately after the accident. A man with a mustache and foreign accent got out, of, got out with a blonde woman and told him not to worry that she was a nurse. She checked his injuries then moved on to the vehicle that hit the Volvo head on and then disappeared from sight. Strangely, witnesses who saw the accident also claimed to see a white van stop at the scene and saw a nerdy looking man and woman get out. They were described as very tall, pale people who were wearing long white coats. They quickly walked over to the cab of the Volvo, retrieved a small package, and then drove off at high speeds. However, the details of the mysterious couple are vague and could not be fully verified. 
It was even theorized that Andreas may have been forced into drug traffic drugs and Juan was kidnapped as ransom. It is speculated that the package the couple retrieved after the accident could have been drugs allegedly a year after the accident. Two pounds of heroin was found in the hidden compartment in the Volvo's trailer. There have been other theories as well about what happened to Juan. Reports of the white van, its behavior, and reports of the people taking something from the truck following the wreck have led people to speculate that the boy had been abducted either by a religious cult or a pedophile ring. People point out that the behavior of the truck may have indicated that his father may have been aware of the kidnap attempt and was trying to shake off the white van. Others theorize that Juan survived the initial accident and the other persons involved in the crash tried to get him to a hospital, but he died in the process. They hid the body because they didn't want to have any problems with the law. Juan Pedro has never been found, and as of today, his case remains unsolved. Number four, Morgan Chantel Nick was born in 1988 and lived in Ozark, Arkansas. On June 9, 1995, at the age of six, she went to a Little League baseball game with her mother, Colleen, at the Wartford baseball field. As the game was coming to an end, Morgan and her two friends walked away to try and catch fireflies. Not long after 10.45 p.m., the three kids were emptying sand from their shoes and they were headed back towards the bleachers. They assumed Morgan was right behind them, but she never showed up. At this point, panic set in when Morgan didn't return with her children and her mother couldn't find her. The children reported seeing a creepy man by a red truck talking to Morgan as she was putting her shoes back on. Sadly, she was never seen again. Other witnesses told authorities that they saw a white man watching Morgan play on the field earlier in the night. The man apparently approached a group of children playing with Morgan and asked them a question, but investigators have not publicly released details about the conversation. The suspect is described as having dark hair with gray spots in it which was combed to the back and possibly curly. He had a mustache and a hairy chest. He was wearing cut-off blue jean shorts, no shirt or shoes, and he spoke with a hillbilly-type accent. He was seen driving a faded red Chevrolet pickup truck, possibly a Silverado or an S10, with a white camper, which had windows covered with curtains. The vehicle left the field's parking lot at approximately the same time Morgan disappeared. Authorities learned the truck was called on a home was called on a home video by a person who was recording the ball games that night earlier the same day. A man with the same description enticed a four-year-old girl with his, into his red truck at a laundromat. Thankfully, the abduction was interrupted and the girl was saved when her mother saw them and screamed and, and screamed. The next day in Fort Smith, 15 miles from Alma, the same man tried to get a nine-year-old girl to go into the men's bathroom 
at a convenience store, but she refused. He resembled the suspect in Morgan's disappearance along with his truck, and authorities believe the incidents were linked. A few weeks later, Albert Harvey in Stewart, Arkansas was working in his yard when he caught a man trying to break into his pickup truck. He told police he chased him away and said the man was pulling a young girl with him that he recognized as Morgan. A massive search took place in Stuttgart overnight, and Morgan's parents, Colleen and John, were even flown in by private plane. Authorities used search dogs and even helicopters, but found nothing. Harvey was given two polygraphs during this time and failed both. He finally admitted that someone did try and break into his truck, but the person did not have a child with them. He apologized to law enforcement and the search teams who were searching in the mosquito-infested heat and was, and was arrested on January 15, 2002. Police conducted a dig on a private piece of land in Boonville, Arkansas, after they received a detailed tip that claimed Morgan might have been buried there, but nothing was found. On November 15, 2010, a confidential informant told police that he believed Morgan was buried at the home of a convicted child molester in Spiro, Oklahoma. At the time, the person was incarcerated, so the mobile home was vacant. They received a warrant to search the home, but didn't find any evidence of Morgan. In 2017, they went back to this home with another warrant to search the outdoor areas and perform a dig in the surrounding area. After another slow search of the property, nothing was found. In August 2012, Tyne Smith and James Monarch, two previously convicted felons, were arrested for computer fraud after using Morgan's social security number and attempting to assume the identity of Morgan. However, it is not believed that they are connected to her disappearance. In April 2021, the documentary Still Missing aired in Arkansas, but about Morgan. As a result, as a result over 300 leads came in, some of which were very credible and had never been reported before during the airing of the documentary. The picture of the red truck that was taken at the baseball field the day of the abduction wasn't released and was believed to have been the one used to abduct Morgan. In November 2021, possibly due to leads that had come in due to the release of Still Missing. It was announced that convicted felon and Arkansas native Billy Jack Lennox was named a person of interest in this case. Several months after Morgan was abducted, he had attempted to abduct another child at a Sonics restaurant in Van Buren, approximately eight miles from where Morgan was last seen. He allegedly drove a red Chevy truck that was described as similar to the red truck that was seen at the baseball field where Morgan was last seen. Although Lennox died in prison in 2000, law enforcement is seeking to interview people who knew him to determine if he was connected to this case. In February of 2022, a local Arkansas news station reported that several items of interest was obtained from Lennox's truck back in 1995 with DNA on it. These items included hair fibers, a machete, rope, tarp, 
duct tape and even blood under one of the seats. However, it is currently unknown how much of this evidence still exists and whether or not it is currently being analyzed in connection with this case. Since her kidnapping, Arkansas has named its missing child alerts after Morgan and a foundation was created in her name by her mother Colleen to help other parents of abducted children. She also became a leading activist for missing children. Morgan has never been found and as of today, this case remains unsolved. Mary Shotwell Little was born in 1940 and would graduate from Myers Park High School in North Carolina. She would then attend the Women's College of the University of North Carolina. In 1965, Mary married a man named Roy Little and he worked in the banking business as a bank examiner. The couple lived in an apartment online circa indicator and Mary began working as a secretary at Citizens in South Bank in Atlanta, Georgia. In mid-October of 65, Roy was out of town training to become an auditor. A day before he was scheduled to return, Mary was busy planning a get-together with her friends to welcome his return. On October 14, 1965, she bought groceries after work at the Colonial Grocery Store at Lenox Square and then met a co-worker for dinner at the Piccadilly Cafeteria in the Lenox Square Shopping Center in the upscale Buckhead neighborhood of Atlanta. Mary was reportedly in good spirits at the time and spoke happily about her married life. She walked back to her car after dinner at approximately 8 p.m. and she strangely disappeared. She didn't show up for work the next morning and did not call in, which was strange because Mary was always dependable and reliable. Her boss called Mary's apartment complex and spoke with her landlord who said that the that who said that Little's morning paper was still on the sidewalk. The landlord entered Little's apartment, but no one was home. Her boss then spoke to Mary's co-worker she dined with the previous evening, who told him that they had dinner together that evening before at the Lenox Shopping Center. Curious if her car was still there, he contacted the Lenox security to have them check for Mary's new metallic pearl gray 1965 Mercury Comet. However, security guards sent to search for the car failed to locate it that morning. Worried, her boss arrived at Lenox Square Mall several hours later around noon and found the car in the spot the co-workers had provided. A couple employees later stated that the car was not there when they arrived that morning. There was a coating of red dust on the car's exterior as if it had been driven on a dirt road. Four bags of groceries were found inside the vehicle along with Coke bottles and a pack of Kent cigarettes, which were Mary's preferred brand. Mary's undergarments had been neatly folded and placed between the front seats and some were even on the floor. The stockings on the floor had been cut and the undergarments had a few speckles of blood on them. Mary's outer clothes, purse, coat, jewelry, and her car keys were missing and have never been found. 
small amounts of blood were also smeared on the steering wheel, the driver's side door, and the window of the passenger side, and on the front seat, the blood was later determined to be the same blood type as Mary's. Some police officers speculated that the scene had been staged due to the smearing of the small amount of blood. There was also an unidentified fingerprint in the blood on the steering wheel. Leonard's security at the time did nightly rounds making note of cars that were left in the lot overnight and issuing citations. While Mary's car evidently left the yellow lot at some point after 8 p.m., as her car was not on their list and not cited and was returned before Mary's boss located it around noon. Authorities never requested Lennox security records to see what cars actually left in what cars were actually left in the lot that night as maybe to investigate those owners. If they might have been able to discover what happened to Mary and who had driven her car away. Investigators learned that Mary's gasoline credit card had been used twice in North Carolina on November 15th, the day following her disappearance. The first time was at a gas station in Mary's hometown of Charlotte just a few hours after she had departed dinner with her co-worker. The second time it was used was 12 hours later at an Exxon gas station in Raleigh. The signatures for both of them appeared to be in Mary's handwriting, being that Charlotte and Riley were only two, three hours apart by car, the 12-hour distance between feelings seemed odd. Also what was odd was the fact that Charlotte's was Mary's hometown. Employees of both places reported seeing a disheveled woman matching Mary's description who seemed to have a minor head injury and was in the company of two men who seemed to be commanding her. The woman appeared to be trying to hide her face from the attendants and she did not ask anyone for help. Authorities speculate that perhaps whoever had Mary was trying to lead the investigation away from Atlanta. Her husband liked to keep a mileage log and Mary's car had been driven only 41 miles. That could not be accounted for. Strangely, the kidnapper had also swapped out her license plate on her car for one that had been stolen in mid-October. Authorities believe that whoever drove Mary's car to the lot may have kept it hidden on the night of her disappearance, only to return it to its initial parking spot later. Her husband was notified of her disappearance and he headed home. A $20,000 ransom demand was made for Mary after news about the credit card slips came out. An anonymous caller told Roy to go to an overpass in the Pixa National Forest in Western North Carolina and find further instructions posted on a sign. An FBI agent went to the location in Roy's place and found a blank piece of paper stuck to the sign. The caller did not contact the little family again and has never been identified. The ransom demand is suspected to be a hoax. There was some speculation that Mary's disappearance may have been connected to a sex scandal at her place of employment around the time she vanished. The bank had hired a former FBI agent to investigate 
investigate claims of lesbian sexual harassment and possible prostitution on the property. Mary apparently knew about the scandal, but it is no longer believed to have anything to do with her disappearance. Co-workers remember that Mary had seemed shaken by calls she received at work prior to her going missing. She never discussed the conversations with anyone, but had been overheard telling the caller that she was married now and could no longer visit them, but they could come visit her. Mary had also received roses from an unknown secret admirer shortly before she vanished. Police traced the flowers to a florist near Mary's home. The invoice for the flowers, however, turned up missing and none of the delivery men remembered delivering the roses. The sale clerk could only remember that the purchaser was a white male. According to some of her friends, she was fearful of being home alone or driving her car alone in the weeks prior, but never explained why. A few days before she disappeared, Mary insinuated to her co-workers that she had something important to tell them but never revealed what it was. Meanwhile, detectives received a call from an unidentified man who said he knew who killed Mary and where her body was. He reported her body was in a vacant lot between Jamestown Shopping Center and the Little Diner out from College Park. He claimed a 40-year-old man who frequented the smokehouse on Ivy Street was responsible for her murder. Police investigators were dispatched to the vacant lot but found nothing. The police file concerning Mary's case vanished sometime in the years after her disappearance. Some police officers who investigated her case do not believe foul play was involved, but instead think Mary staged her own disappearance for unknown reasons. However, other investigators believe Mary was abducted. A woman reported being approached by a man as she was getting in her car in the Lenin Square Mall shopping center parking lot the night Mary went missing. She locked her door and refused to open it despite the man insisting that her tire was flat. She drove away in a fright, stopping at a service station down the road where she saw that all four of her tires were in good condition. The young woman estimated she was approached by the man shortly before 8 p.m. when Mary would have been telling her co-worker goodnight and heading for her car in the yellow light. Another woman who had been shopping at Lennox the same night Mary disappeared told her husband she had seen a silver comet leaving the mall about 8 with a woman fitting Mary's description at the wheel. She reported that Mary appeared to be alone in the car and she had noticed the car because she drove, she also drove a comet. Many other tips and leads came out, but all led to a dead end. Mary's position at the bank was eventually replaced by 22-year-old Diane Shields. Shockingly, she too received five roses from an anonymous sender before going missing 18 months later, just like Mary. She had also lived with the same roommate, Sandra Green, that Mary had lived with before she married. Both Mary and Diane had moved out of the apartment they shared with Sandra before going missing. Mary with her husband and Diane with her sister. Diane was last seen leaving work no longer at the bank, but instead now with Georgia Associated Industries. 
At 2.30 a.m. the next day, the car was found near a laundromat on Savane Road in Atlanta with her body inside the truck of her blue and white 1963 Chevrolet convertible. She was fully clothed and had not been sexually assaulted. She was still wearing her diamond engagement ring. Her cause of death was from suffocation. Many speculate that their cases could be connected and may possibly involve their former roommate, Sandra Green. Was Sandra the caller heard talking to Mary on the phone before she went missing? Was Sandra infatuated with both Mary and Diane and became angry when Mary got married and Diane was scheduled to be married soon to her fiancé? The mystery of Mary and the murder of Diane Shields will become known as two of Atlanta's most notorious unsolved cases, which as of today, both remain unsolved. I hope that you all really enjoyed this episode since I wanted to bring something different. I am going to leave a statement or a question in the box. If Once again, if there's something that you want to hear, just let me know. If you would like to donate to my podcast, you are more than welcome by just clicking the link below. Thank you all for joining and listening. I hope you all have a great night. Bye.